Hello, my very generous and dear Nisim Taleb and Inserto podcast listener. I wanted to put this episode here on this podcast feed because when this episode was recorded, I think the general assumption was is that this conflict was just Putin throwing the toys out of the crib to get a bunch of attention as to uh, put himself in a better position to leverage some sort of energy deal for his you know woeful Russian economy. Um, but it has obviously since endured and continues to remain <laughs> quite a serious threat over here in Europe. Um, and I understand that it's got really nothing to do with the Nissin Taleb or the Inserto. But because, like, I've made this appeal many times, I am under the assumption that we have more than one mutual interest. So the Nassim Taleb and the Inserto is clearly the reason why we're all here. But I just imagine that there are other interests of ours that cross over as well. So I'm posting this here, which was an interview that originally aired on my primary podcast called The Curious Worldview Podcast. A couple of weeks ago now, it's with an extremely qualified guest, the name of Vijay Vasvrisvaran, completely stumbled his last name there, but he's uh, the chief editor at The Economist for Climate and Energy. So, so that's a brief preamble for why I'm posting it on this feed right now. Uh, my hope is that a lot of the audience listening over here might also be interested in my main podcast. I completely understand not all of you will be. I totally get it. But just hopefully there's a few of you that might be. And consider this episode an example of what you can expect over there. It's a short one. And so now I'm just going to play the full episode uh, as it was originally aired, including the introduction and the afterthoughts. But my dear, this into Lebanon Soda podcast listener. Please consider subscribing to The Curious Worldview, where you can expect, and you'll see from the library of podcast episodes over there, a wide range of eclectic curiosities being filled, addressed, met, and spoken about. So all the best. Cheers, fellas. Bye. The following is a conversation with Vijay Vathfisaran. Vijay has led a life of journalism. At this moment, his current role is as the global climate and energy innovation editor for The Economist. But previously, he was the man who opened up The Economist's first regional bureau in Latin America, choosing the very green and flavorful streets of Mexico City. I think that was back in 96 or 98. Vijay is the chairman of The Economist's Innovation Summit. Uh, he's a multiple times author, and he's served amazingly on The Economist's editorial staff since 1992 and so truly a wonderful authority on the subject for which this podcast is about in this conversation vj explains back to front the multiple energy variables at play in the ongoing ukraine russia standoff at the ukrainian border in this podcast you can expect to hear about the following why energy is at the heart of this moment between russia and the ukraine the potency of putin's energy threat why this is even happening in the first place and then plus, what do we make of all the war rhetoric? And so do hang around to the end to hear my afterthoughts and also my ambition for the podcast. And then with all of that, here I present to you the Global Climate and Energy Innovation Editor at The Economist, Vijay Vatsvisvara. Well, good afternoon, Vijay. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you. Off the top, can you please explain the role both gas and energy play in what is happening now between Russia and the Ukraine? Well, this is uh, really right at the heart of um, some of the uncertainty that's shaking world commodity markets at the moment. Um, the basic fact that's uh, worth rolling one's mind around is um, 
Russia supplies about a third of the gas that Europe uses. Uh, this is supplied by pipeline through typically very long-standing relationships. And this had generally been seen as a reliable source of energy for Europe. In some countries in Europe, uh, that percentage is much, much higher than one-third. The Baltic states, for example, uh, in Germany, for example, it's a much higher sh- a share of their total gas consumption. Um, but even going back to the Soviet days, Moscow never cut off the gas supply to Europe in a significant way. It was seen as a, one of the areas where business would prevail. And people who are energy experts said, look, piped gas is actually something that binds people together in interdependence. And the reason is that um, the seller of gas can't sell it to anybody else. Unlike with um, a different kind of gas called liquefied natural gas, or LNG, that can be put on a ship at very cold temperatures and shipped all over the world. That's a fungible global commodity. You can find other customers. If you build a pipeline at great expense and connect it to a big customer, the seller needs the customer as much as the customer needs a seller, or else that gas is, is gone. You, you can't monetize it, right? You lose the customer, you lose the money. And so this used to be seen as an important kind of trust-building exercise and a interdependence. And even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviets never cut off the gas to Germany. But here's what's different. We know that Vladimir Putin uh, has a lot of, uh, let's say, frustrations with how Europe uh, is is behaving at the moment. And it's not just to do with Ukraine. There there are bigger questions to do with NATO expansion, as well as specific beefs he has about how Europe is handling its energy markets. Europe is trying very aggressively to get off of gas, which he doesn't like, you know, in part to deal with climate change, to build up on renewables. So they're trying to, they have been trying to de-emphasize natural gas. And also they've they've moved off of long-term gas contracts that Russia likes, that most gas sellers want their customers to to sign 20-year contracts so that it gives them some security of supply. The European Commission decided a, a decade ago that they were going to get away from this because this gave too much power to, in this case, Gazprom, the Russian gas exporter. And uh, they did a series of policies that busted the market power of Gazprom, let um, uh, shifting from these long-term contracts to spot contracts. Uh, so prices would vary over time. Uh, the piped gas would have to compete with the gas that was coming in through so-called LNG or by ship. And uh, people who bought the gas would have the right to sell to third parties. That used to be banned by Gazprom, and so the European Commission busted up that sort of monopolistic action. All these things have made Vladimir Putin very annoyed because he sees this as undermining and disrespecting Russia's position and Gazprom's position. And so now there is a real prospect that he might cut off the gas to Europe that's the reason it's concerning. And there's uh, one other factor I would say, and that is he can afford it. Unlike the Soviets, who were basically bankrupt, they had a rickety economy and they relied on the hurt currency that used to come from selling gas to the West for dollars. Um, he has $600 billion in, in the central bank in terms of reserves. So Russia has a lot of money. A disruption of, say, three months, interrupting sales of gas to uh, Europe, cutting off all the gas would only lose him about $20 billion or so in lost sales at current prices. And so he can easily afford that hit in the short term. Now, in the long term, he would be seen as an unreliable partner, and so we can talk about long-term consequences. But in the, in the short term, Russia can afford to be a bad boy, to use the energy weapon, and the question then becomes, how, how would Europe suffer? How would it, how would it affect mm. Europe? How could Europe respond? 
uh, and, but that's this is a prospect that commodity markets are are considering as a very serious threat, and we're seeing price prices ripple through not only in gas but also oil, which is related and linked, and other kinds of commodities that Russia has a big role in. You said um, some countries rely on it more than others. Uh, this is taken from your article in the Economist, uh, the the graph. Austria, Finland, Lithuania, as a percentage of the total energy, 100% comes from this natural gas import from Russia. Germany, 60%. Slovakia, 85%. Hungary, 75%, 80 It's extremely fragile to this type of disruption. What's the, what are the consequences if he did, say, actually cut off the gas and it wasn't just a bluff? So uh, you're, you're quite right. I, I did run some numbers with the story that I just did for The Economist. Um, and just to be super clear, the figures that you're citing are of the gas that these countries use. What proportion of it comes from Russia? And oh, you're okay. uh, quite right, for example, in the case of Lithuania, it's 100% of the gas they use is Russian gas. Um, but if you ask what proportion of their energy comes from gas as opposed to nuclear or renewables or coal or anything else. In the case of Lithuania, only 11% of their energy use comes from gas. And so, obviously, you don't want to lose 11% of your energy overnight. That's a, you know, a terrible problem, but it's not like you're losing 100% of your mm. energy. So just to clarify and calibrate. No, I misread that. Yeah, thank you. No, no, no. That's, that's no it's, it's, it's important to drill into this, uh, no pun intended, uh, because um, there's actually a surprise. I went into this story thinking... The lights are going to go off. Granny's going to freeze. This, you know, Putin really has Europe, or, you know, in a terrible position, and he'll get whatever he wants. But as I spent quite a lot of time with the energy experts, the market analysts, and and looking into the data, what I discovered was actually Europe is in a much better place today than it was in two thousand nine. Now I picked two thousand nine because that was uh, one of the last big uh, standoffs between Russia and Ukraine when he, Putin did, in fact cut off the gas for a short amount of time. Um, and it was over uh, haggling with Ukraine over transit fees. Where the, he claimed that they were stealing some of the gas that goes through Ukraine to get to Europe and so on. Uh, but he did use the energy weapon. He shut off the gas for some period of time. And so we know he's capable of it. He's willing to do it in a way the Soviets weren't. Um, and since that time, what the European Commission and the different countries in Europe have done is at that time, Europe had virtually no capacity to take liquid gas, that is liquefied natural gas, LNG. Uh, that technology has taken off and they've built a lot of facilities to take in gas from anywhere in the world. Qatar is a big producer. Australia is a producer and exporter. The U.S. is now the number one producer and exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. Uh, and these cargoes are on the high seas headed increasingly to Europe because of that decision. So that provides an alternative uh, and that can be increased over time. And already, in response to the European price crisis, because prices have gone up on the spot market, uh, the Chinese are dumping cargoes, uh, sending them towards Europe. Dozens of cargoes is the report from the markets because they can get a higher price for them. And so I think uh, there's already a, a natural diversification that's coming from, uh, thankfully, having another source of uh, natural gas. And they have gas in storage as well. They keep these giant salt caverns and other ways of storing gas in the ground uh, that should provide a few months of cover. So as long as the, the cutoff of gas lasts uh, two or three months, which is what people who worry about a doomsday, they worry that Russia might cut off the gas during winter. 
because by the time you get to spring, there's no longer any leverage because the people stop using their heat in springtime. Gas use drops dramatically, and so Putin's leverage is gone by April. So if there were to be a cutoff, it would last a few months. Uh, they have enough resilience in the European energy system now uh, and uh, a web of interconnected pipelines so that if Germany were to suffer or Lithuania, there are ways to get gas to it uh, from other neighbors that didn't exist 15 years ago because now they have a very dense web of pipelines and interconnectors that can send gas in multiple directions. Even the Ukraine, if you look at Ukrainian gas consumption, um, because they know Russia is an unreliable supplier, they um, actually get all of the gas that they use in Ukraine from the West, that is through pipelines that come from uh, countries that are to its West, even though they supply gas as a transit country from Russia to uh, to Europe taking a fee for it. They don't rely on that gas because Putin may cut that off. Mm. And so there are ways that technology and grid investments and uh, competition policy have weakened the power of Gazprom. So Europe's in a better place. Now, would it still be painful? Yes. And would it be a massive price shock? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Europe is going to spend over a trillion dollars on energy this year. That's even before a war is going to happen. Um, if there were to be war, it would be much more than that on energy. Mm. Two years ago, they spent half that amount, just to give you an idea. So this is going to be very expensive, but it doesn't mean granny has to freeze. I think that that's mm. not going to happen. That anecdote you said just at the end there, how um, Ukraine will facilitate the transfer of gas, but not take it any of them themselves is such a great geopolitical anecdote of influence basically although it would be cheaper more accessible better for them overall the risk trade-off is just too much they don't want to have anything to do with it if europe is resistant to the potential trigger of the of the energy weapon putin does turn off the 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 tap if europe is resistant to that potentiality doesn't that make the energy threat much doesn't that reduce the threat of using the energy weapon and therefore make it more likely that putin wouldn't actually go through with it i think that the reasoned bet is that putin will not carry out the energy uh threat to its completion meaning that is really cutting off all the gas for you know months at a time now not everybody in the markets either understands this or wants to believe this. And, and also, you know, people take bets, right? There are outlier bets. If it happens, the risks are so asymmetric. That is, if he doesn't do it, uh, one trader put it to me this way, um, if there is no war and peace breaks out, the oil price will drop from, you know, around $90 a barrel to maybe 85 You know, dog didn't bark, no news, things just calm down a little bit. But if it does happen, the oil prices will go to 120 or maybe even 150 so suddenly you get the dogs of war interested and, and the in the people who want to get in on the market and see a certain outcome because they could profit from it or they need to hedge against Massive it. Massive they, they need to protect you know, themselves against it. Um, that becomes much more interesting than the more boring outcome that he probably doesn't do it, which I think is still probabilistically most likely. Uh, what may well happen is something in between. That is, he'll cut, he, he's been doing this already. He's been turning down the flow of gas across the multiple pipelines that come to Europe quite strongly. And so, he, uh, in a sense, he's been um, reducing the Russian energy supply to Europe over the last couple of years, and including the last few months, and it's particularly through Europe, uh, through Ukraine, but as well through some of the other pipelines, and it has been offset by a big increase in liquefied natural gas, LNG. That's how Europe's been managing uh, in the last few months. But it did help prompt a massive 
crunch in October, November, we saw a huge energy shock in Europe and prices went through the roof. A number of British uh, energy companies, suppliers went bankrupt. They had to shut down aluminum smelters and heavy industrial use in parts of Europe, you'll know. And so uh, we've already had a price shock that was slightly mischievously um, and maybe opportunistically taken advantage of by Gazprom. Now the concern is, will he take it to the next level? Will he squeeze further? Uh, even if he doesn't cut off all the supplies, he could certainly push prices higher. And nudge, nudge, wink, wink, higher prices for oil and gas would actually profit Gazprom handsomely. And so it's actually a, a financial play that ends up profiting him in the short term. The big question over all of it is, in preparation for speaking to you now, try to understand broadly the question, why is he doing it in the first place? You know, what is the big motivation over all of this? Um, and you mentioned briefly, it's sort of an expansion of NATO that he might be threatened by. But is that it? Could you explain why this is all happening in the first place? Well, this is the big question, right? Nobody... Uh, can get into his head other than really, I think, Putin himself. But informed speculation says, look, you know, there's always been this question of um, uh, the West trying to bring Ukraine into its orbit, right? Um, and there is, I think, uh, to some degree, uh, a very, uh, the collapse of the old Soviet Union and the, the CIS, uh, the near abroad, the Soviet sphere, is something that Putin has often expressed great regret. He thinks it's one of the great tragedies of the last 30 years, and mm -hmm. he's been basically devoted himself to, to fixing that, to, to returning Russia to greatness. And that, that's no big secret. That's been true for, for, for a long time. Uh, but Ukraine plays a special role in this because in his mind particularly, and that of some subset of Russia, Ukrainians are very much uh, part of Russia's cultural, intellectual, historical orbit. The idea that they may somehow gravitate towards Europe through uh, embrace of democracy, through maybe participation in NATO eventually, um, uh, is a huge threat to what they believe is theirs. That is, that their sphere of influence uh, and is an encroachment by the West into into Russia and its interests. And so I think there. And he recently wrote a seven thousand word essay, personal essay, signed by him, sent to every soldier in in the Russian forces, on. Ukraine and nationalism and Russia. And so it's mm -hmm. something I think he, he's putting his personal stamp on. This is not just some sort of cold, calculated geopolitical move. This is, I think, at a personal level, uh, very deeply motivated by a sense of indignation, frustration, uh, and anger at what's happening there. And that's actually more potent, more dangerous, because that means he might make emotional, irrational decisions, like cutting off all the gas, which would not be in Russia's interest or Gazprom interest into the medium term or long term, but in the short term, he might use it as a weapon to bludgeon his enemies. Um, but as I mentioned, there are also specific energy-related grievances that he has. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how uh, Europe has uh, challenged Gazprom's quasi-monopoly power, certainly strong market power, uh, through some of these competitive contracts that it wants and and. It has also introduced the LNG uh, to compete against his gas, which he doesn't like, busted up the long-term contracts, which give it not only market power, but also certainty, right? Uh, Gazprom knows it can invest for 20 years because it has a customer for 20 years. And so that's a legitimate point, in my view. I think that is reasonable for him to say we should have long-term relationship and long-term contracts. So it's not all just a, a crazy stuff in his head. I think there's a reasonable, some reasonable dimensions to his concerns. The other thing that he has wanted to do is to take Ukraine out of the gas game and to that end has built multiple rival pipelines, which Russia has been very open about. Uh, a couple of them connect to Turkey and through Turkey. 
um, and others bypass to the north, and the most important one uh, is called Nord Stream. Uh, Nord Stream 1, which goes to Germany directly, is already open and running. Nord Stream 2 has been built at great expense, connecting to Germany, but has not been allowed to open. And so that is a source of tremendous frustration for him because if it were to be allowed to be open, given final permission to, to send gas, uh, Gazprom would basically wind down its transit of gas through Ukraine to zero. And it would ha- send its gas through the northerly routes and south through Turkey. And that would take the Ukraine gas question out of the uh, geopolitical calculation. Um, but the West doesn't want this. The West wants to support Ukraine and the money they get from that transit and the relationship that's created by that gas. Uh, and so Germany has held up approval for, in my view, political reasons. Uh, Germany was very much a part of agreeing to that pipeline, but now it's become a political question, political football. The U.S. has opposed that pipeline for political reasons. And so now we're caught in a quandary. Is it a regulatory decision? Is it a political decision? Of course it's a political decision. A uh, pipeline is built. It's actually a brand new pipeline. So environmentally speaking, it's much better for, let's say, methane leakage and other greenhouse gas considerations and the creaky old set of pipelines that go through the Ukraine. So if Europe is so concerned about climate change, which it is, they should actually favor a shift, ironically, to a non-leaking and modern pipeline uh, like Nord Stream 2 than a a set of uh, very old pipes. But that's not how it's being viewed in, in Europe at the moment. So that's fascinating. The explanation for why Nord Stream 2, although it's built, ready to go, ready to rock and roll, hasn't been uh, turned on is because Europe is taking Ukraine's side in this because they know that if Nord Stream 2 becomes available, I suppose the Ukraine becomes much more reliant on Russia. Is that the the broader narrative here? And by becoming more yeah. reliant no, on Russia, it increases if, the relationship? If you talk to German regulatory experts, they'll say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with politics. There's some box-ticking exercises. The uh, Nord Stream 2 company must set up a local German entity and meet these final regulatory checks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I call BS on that. I mean, yes, yeah. there, there are some technicalities that have to be done. But in fact, this is a grand geopolitical decision. The Biden administration is weighing in on whether a pipeline should connect Russia or Germany. Well, wh- wh- what business do they have? It's as if Russia would have an opinion on whether the U.S. and Mexico should have an electricity power connector. It, you know, it's, to me, it's clearly a political uh, issue. Uh, and the worry is that uh, somehow this will, uh, first of all, make Germany more dependent on Russian gas, which it would by definition. It's a, co- it's a connector between Russia and Germany. Uh, but also that if it were to uh, give the chance to shut down those Ukrainian pipelines, it would undermine an important revenue stream for the Ukrainian government, which uh, Europe doesn't want. Europe wants to be seen to be supporting Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So there's also a lot of talk of war and invasion. Uh, where do you come down on that? Is it simply just a flex, a big move to get a lot of attention and create all of this discussion? Do you think there's actually a genuine chance that he wants to try and annex further land from the Ukraine? So. The My colleagues who are close to the security question, I tend to follow the energy question, um, day by day, week by week, they're growing more and more alarmed. The ones that talk to the military generals and the geopolitical sort of um, strategists, uh, including my colleague in Moscow and our uh, colleagues that are close on the ground in Ukraine as well, are um, much more concerned today than they were a week ago or a month ago that we will see conflict. Now, 
there are different scenarios that they work up. One is that, you know, something akin to what we've seen in the past, that is minor skirmish at the border. There will be some intrusion of, of Ukrainian territory, but that it'll remain minor. That's one scenario. There's the extreme scenario that somehow he wants to take over the whole country, that Kiev is in threat, that there'll be a massive invasion trying to take over all of of Ukraine. That seems unlikely uh, and would certainly prompt a massive NATO response. So again, that's not the likeliest option. That seems highly unlikely. Um, but an intermediate one, which I worry about, is that he might try to take over part of the country, maybe create a land bridge to Crimea so that there's a connected uh, Russian enclave, as it were, a much bigger path uh, for his uh, economic and political interest to advance in that area. Uh, but that wouldn't undermine the sovereignty of the country for the rest of the territory. And unfortunately, that you know, I worry that that might be an attractive, aggressive posture. And he might be gambling that uh, America doesn't have the stomach and Europe doesn't have the gumption to stop him from doing that. Because, of course, it would take boots on the ground and people will die, and maybe many of them. Uh, and uh, in a political year in the U.S., where the president's already highly unpopular and about to lose a midterm election, according to the polls, is there really going to be much appetite for uh, this kind of uh, intervention? And maybe not. And so it remains to be seen, right? Um, so he may be making a set of calculations that uh, go differently than what geopolitical strategists who look at this say. And the, and the betting is that there will not be an aggressive all-out war uh, it may very well likely to be a small skirmish. He has to have something face-saving at this point. Uh, right. uh, to go home empty-handed at this point, having done nothing, would make him look ridiculous. And so he has to have something that's face-saving and some form of military skirmish that he can call a success may be the best we can hope for in this situation. And so with the energy cards and chips that he has at his disposal, uses the threat, the motivation is to spur further nationalism within Russia to support his idea of rejoining Ukraine, our lost brothers who used to be one of us, culturally are a part of us, rejoin them with the great Russian empire. Um, that's a loose understanding of the situation. No, no, I think you got it. I think you got it right. I think those are the kinds of memes and um, uh, ideas that are motivating him, and also you see in the Russian media. Uh, now, I'm not saying Russians all buy into this, but we know certainly under Putin, there's no meaningful opinion polls in Russia, right? Because people are afraid to tell the truth to pollsters. But the best my colleagues can work out, uh, you, you know, he has whipped up nationalistic fervor. There's no doubt. Um, and certainly lots of Russians are happy not to be seen as weak and defenseless, but rather to be part of great Russia rising again, right? That We can understand that. Xi Jinping is using the same kind of uh, rhetoric as many dictators and autocrats do to whip up national frenzy, right? They try to whip up notions of national uh, greatness. They use and invoke uh, ideas of national grievance, either true or imagined, uh, of travesties by foreigners intruding on their national dignity and so on. These are well-known tactics by by uh, thugs and dictators around the world. Putin is deploying them effectively. He's a clever uh, autocrat, and he's been very successful in power, right? So I think that's part of what's going on for sure. He's pandering for his home base or helping shore up his own strength. Uh, by, but I do think there's more to it than that, and there's reason to think that this is, uh, you know, it very, cuts very deeply to what he believes in and his... Um, how he wants to use his power for, um, again, the greatness of Russia. Mm. 
on the on the theme of sort of whipping up nationalism in one of the most dope fueled Olympic Games ever in Sochi, where Russia swept it. They from that very feverish uh, temperature of nationalism, they then annexed Crimea, right? So, but in this situation, his aggression is whipping up the nationalism, or has something preceded this to get Russia on his side, or the Russian people on his side, or the national mood on his side to then justify what he's doing now? Well, I mean, he's been in he's been in power for a long time, as you know, uh, and he came in after a period of great decline under Yeltsin, right? Um, and so I think um, uh, we, if we look at the arc of his time in power, uh, there's no, in my mind, there's no doubt that he is the architect of this kind of, uh, you know, make Russia great now policy, if you want to call it that, that he's pursued um, with different pillars, right? One was on the energy front. He made uh, Russia as an oil superpower, oil and gas superpower, we forget that even though Gazprom is known for selling natural gas and it has power over Europe in, in the natural gas realm, most of its revenue and most of Russia's revenue comes from oil. It's a, a major oil exporter and on par with the other two energy superpowers, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Uh, those are the really big powers in oil production because of shale in the U.S., of course. And uh, he has successfully brought Russia into concert with OPEC uh, the price fixers from the Middle East. And so now you're finding actually a massive resources flowing to Russia. Uh, that's an example of Russian greatness, right? That, that $600 billion in hard currency sitting in the central bank, yeah, a big chunk of that is because of energy and other kinds of minerals as well, where he's encouraged his oligarch pals to export successfully. Uh, and so he's managed parts of the economy very well so that uh, his, you know, he's, he's Russian greatness at least has some basis of uh, success. That is, the resource economy is doing well. He's done very little to diversify the economy for the future, uh, and that's, I think, the great weakness. Uh, but it, the, he does have resources at his disposal to, to support his military misadventures. Vijay, to round off this segment, could you speculate as to the second, third, fourth order consequences of all of this that's happening now? I think um, if we look at the energy realm, uh, there is not a more effective tactic that Putin could uh, embrace to destroy Gazprom's business in Europe than an all-out war and energy cutoff of Europe. I think that would be the last straw. Um, I mean, we've had sort of a death by a th thousand paper cuts on this one because he has played politics with the gas through Ukraine. Uh, cutting off gas for a day or two or a small amount of time, and it's it's annoyed Europe. But it was never enough uh, because they, they didn't want to kick their addiction to Gazprom gas because it's it's very easy. It's piped. It's available. The alternatives are hard and fiddly. I mean, you got to build up a lot of solar, and you have to build all these regasification facilities, and there's a nimbyism. In Germany, for example, one of the greenest countries on Earth, Germany has a massive wind resource offshore, but they can't build the transmission lines, uh, the high-voltage transmission lines to get the energy from where it would be offshore to where the industrial clusters are in the south of the country. So they haven't done it. So there, uh, all the alternatives have problems, is my point, right? And so, uh, and they shut down their nuclear power plants, right? So they're more reliant on gas than they would be otherwise. And so this would finally crystallize to Europe that it needs to get its act together in getting off of Russian gas. 
um, and that would probably accelerate the green transition in Europe uh, and may focus the minds in Brussels at the, among the Eurocrats uh, and among politicians in Germany that maybe we need to rethink our nuclear shutdowns, for example, because that is a, a low-carbon way to have energy that is not reliant on Russian gas. The alternative is gas from somewhere, and it's probably going to come from Russia. Uh, and so I think that's an important effect. On, in terms of geopolitics, there can be unintended consequences or unexpected ones. And you're right to ask about second, third, and fourth order. I thought that if it proved itself, Russia did, an unreliable supplier to Europe, that it would affect their Chinese contracts, that um, you know they're increasingly trying to get, sell China gas from uh, the other side of Russia, from Siberia. And they've set up some pipelines. There's some LNG that goes to China. But China has always been very wary. I've lived in China for many years in the past and uh, certainly know of their uh, concerns about relying on Russia. But they also need the gas, so they've been getting into these situations. I thought, well, surely they would walk away from these contracts. And I was uh, educated by some uh, geopolitical thinkers uh, who reminded me that after that Crimea conflict and, and playing politics with the gas to Europe was exactly when the first big Chinese contracts were signed. The Chinese happily took Russian gas when they had difficulties in Europe. So their geopolitical calculation could be very different. Um, and so the, some of the deeper thinkers on geopolitics see and that Russia and China may actually come together more closely. The further apart Russia drifts from Europe, their natural alliance may actually work in their interest because both countries, the leadership of both countries, do see um, demons everywhere, that the West is out to get them, that uh, in the case of Europe, uh, they're out to get Russia. Certainly China feels it with America and the West. And so you may very well see an alliance between a massive energy and resource provider and a massive energy resource consumer getting closer together. And that would be an alliance that would be quite problematic for the West. Mm. Uh, just very quickly, when you talk about deep and uh, the best geopolitical thinkers, what names uh, come to your head? One example, uh, uh, Daniel Jurgen, who's written a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, yeah, uh, that, yeah. uh, set of books, but you know he's a, he's a great energy geopolitical thinker. Uh, and uh, uh, Thane Gustafsson, who's a professor at uh, uh, Georgetown University, but also uh, a deep thinker on energy, geopolitics, Europe, Russia, um, uh, people like that. The more, more and more, as I've uh, dug into this question, uh, and of course, talk to my old Chinese sources as well. Um, there continues to be, uh, you know, distrust between China and Russia, but there's also some cold, cold hard calculations that they trust America even less, and so sure. uh, <laughs> in, uh, in this increasingly uh, sort of hostile time between the two countries. Uh, now, bear in mind, China actually has got lots of gas contracts with American LNG suppliers. So uh, they're keeping their options open, right? So China is buying from everybody. Uh, but the idea of somehow Russia being treated as a pariah because it cuts off Europe is not how the Chinese see it. They see it as a localized problem having to do with a problematic customer. And their relationship with, with uh, Russia is inured or buffered from that particular mm -hmm. European problem. Does China have gas pipelines running into the country, or is this all the other type of gas that can be liquefied and then shipped? Interestingly, uh, China has both kinds of relationships. In the north, uh, supplying the provinces closer to the border, piped gas, it makes economic sense to send piped gas only for a certain distance. Um, and 
you have that. But to supply the south in uh, dynamic industrial parts of the country, you have uh, liquefied natural populous. gas uh, uh, coming by boat. And so you're going to uh, have the interesting prospect of Russian gas coming from the south and Amazing. piped gas from Russia in the north, uh, yeah. perhaps even competing with each other, which would be an interesting prospect. Well, Vijay, absolutely fascinating. I am very grateful and thrilled that you decided to give me some of your time. And um, really, what an honor it is. I have a huge amount of long admiration for The Economist ever since I was in university. It was heavily romanticized as the place to be, where the smart people are, all this sort of stuff. So um, it's really cool to get to talk to you. So thanks, mate. Ryan, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow, I think you'll agree with me. That was amazing. I admit that that was about the most nervous I've been for a podcast in recent memory. Much like Tim Marshall, Dan McDougall, Tim Butcher, and some of the other journalists that have appeared on this podcast, VJ speaks in this beautifully understated but elegant finished prose. <laughs> and um, I think there's no other way to explain it except it just being the consequence of years and years and years of writing to meet a deadline. You just start to think in whatever the final uh, words that are going to come out on, on, on the on the page are. And so, yeah, I, that was a tremendous experience for me and uh, hopefully for you now, at least this very contemporary moment of Russia and the Ukrainian border, there is a level of insight that you now have, which before might have not been there. So thank you to VJ so much. But anyway, now my ambition for this podcast, uh, if you've still hung around to this moment, you're very generous and Dear listener, so thank you. And I want to just tell you that my ambition for the podcast is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is you're listening in from. And so a part of cornering an eclectic market, whatever that might mean, just suggests that there's going to be many, many different types and genres and themes of show that uh, come onto this podcast. And so today clearly was a snapshot of a very contemporary issue. But as you would have seen last week, we had on one of the best wildlife photographers in the world potentially ever next week uh, on Tuesday we're going to have Tim Butcher come on and speak about the Congo in a way that you've surely never heard about it before and then there's going to be a deep dive on NFTs and then there's all this other great stuff I had a fantastic guy Spencer Robertson to speak about the calamitous embarrassment that is farmed fishing and the toxicity of agriculture and anyway many 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 things uh eclectic right so it's not all going to be for you but the ones that are there i really hope they are truly for you and something that uh, resonates and, and means a lot to you so anyway discovery that's the problem with the podcast game right how do you actually get the show in front of other people's eyes um unfortunately it's down to one or two variables and that's reviews and um and five-star ratings. So I ask all of you, I urge you, in fact, if you're listening right now, take Apple Podcasts, leave five stars, leave a nice written review. Spotify, go onto the show, leave five-star reviews. Good pods, review the episode, review the show. Whatever way you can make a review, it would be the best thing that you could do for me and the show. So thank you very much. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. The great and powerful VJ. And um, that's all from me. All the best. Ciao.